Matthew chapter 16. It's good to see you here this morning. We want to continue our time of worship, spending a few moments in God's Word and hearing what the Lord Jesus would have to say to us through His Word. Matthew chapter 16. And this morning we want to look at the realistic expectations of being a disciple. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you, but have you ever interviewed for a job and you had one expectation for what that job would be like only to find out that the job description and the job reality were two totally different things. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. I think about one time when I was in seminary and there was a job listing and I thought this would be a good part-time job and I went and interviewed with the owner and he was explaining all the things that were a part of the job. And I remember just, you know, you're eager, you want the job, you need the money. And, but at the same time, I thought, this, something doesn't add up here. What was on paper, it was online, but what was on paper is not matching what he's telling me. And I, I was very uncertain and unsure about it. And, and as I talked with the owner, the manager, more and more, I realized this was a... Uh, if I could put it this way, it was a bit of a con. Uh, it was uh, to get a seminary student to sign up, get paid very little, uh, and basically work that seminary student into the ground. Unfortunately, that does happen. But sometimes we get frustrated either because we have one expectation and it's not met, or we're deceived, but Jesus does not want ill-informed disciples. He does not want us to follow him without knowing exactly what we're signing up for. And so this morning we want to talk about realistic expectations. We're talking about discipleship. You remember we turned in Matthew's gospel. There was a turn in the narrative where Peter makes that great confession. Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then he starts teaching the disciples what does it mean to follow him. And we talked last time about the proper posture of a disciple. It's one that lets Jesus take the lead. It's one that puts Jesus first. A disciple is one who follows or comes after Christ. And we saw that Peter misunderstood what this meant. Uh, he thought it was impossible that the Messiah, the promised one, would suffer. That he would undergo distress he thought it was impossible, impossible that, that the Messiah would be associated with the, the shame that was associated with, the, with death and a cross. And uh, Jesus, however, corrects Peter's understanding. But in our passage this morning, he uses this as a teaching moment for the disciples. He turns in verse 24... And it says that then he said to his disciples, and I think by extension, he's speaking to every single believer in the room this morning. Jesus wants his disciples to know what to expect. So this morning, as believers, if you are a believer, someone who's trusted Christ as your Savior, maybe this is a reminder for you this morning exactly what you should expect in following Christ. Or maybe you're considering following Christ. 
or maybe you don't know the expectations and, and you're, you and, and the Lord are kind of at a standstill or a standoff because he hasn't met your expectations. Maybe following him hasn't been as easy as you thought it was going to be or you thought things were just all going to work out and, and life was just going to be so easy. But what are the expectations? When we look at verses 24 through 28, we see that Jesus gives three expectations of a disciple. Three expectations of a disciple. And then after that, he gives three reasons for why he says what he says. So in, verses 20, in verse 24, we have the three expectations of a disciple. In verse 25 through 27, we see the reasons Jesus says what he says in verse 24. And then in verse 28, we have one great promise that Jesus makes. It, it kind of sums it all up. And really puts it in perspective. So we have three expectations, three reasons, and a promise. Okay? So let's look at these. And as we look at them, let's read the text. And we're going to work our way through it. Verse 24. Listen to what Jesus says. He says to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what benefit? What will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? Verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly. I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at the expectations of following Your Son, Jesus, Lord, give us hearts that are quick to hear, quick to listen, and Lord, that we would have a right frame of reference for what it means to follow Jesus, but also the great promise and rest that this brings to every follower of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So before we get to the three expectations in verse 24, let's be clear for, this, for the sake of perhaps beating, not a dead horse, we don't want to put it that way, but, but just so we're clear, these are expectations for disciples. It's about discipleship. This is a passage, if you want to think of it this way, that is to characterize what life will be like after you have begun a life, a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage, and really verse 24, is not about how to start the Christian life. Okay? And I want to be absolutely clear about this because a lot of times this is how it is understood. How, because, and, and let's, be, let's be fair, we kind of understand it, right? Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow after me, this is what you need to do. And the way that's interpreted is, if you want to begin a relationship and start following Jesus Christ, here's what you need to do. You need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what you must do to be saved. What's the problem with that? You can't do that. Number one, that's salvation by works. That is, I am saved by denying myself. I am saved by me taking up the cross. I am saved by following Jesus. But 
what this does is it mixes, it collapses the fruit of salvation with the means of salvation. That, that we are, we, we just read in Romans, right? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what saves us. Trusting and resting in Jesus. Confessing, believing, resting, however you want to think of it. That is how it starts. But then after that, the life of a disciple ought to look a certain way. It is the life of a disciple that is characterized by this. So yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We contribute nothing. It is a sovereign work of God. Afterwards, however, if we want to follow Him, Jesus says, here's what it looks like. So, Broadly speaking, this is about sanctification. This is not about salvation. Okay, This is about what your life should look like as a Christian after you have begun and confessed and rested in and, and believed the gospel. Okay, So what are the three expectations of a life of a disciple? Number one, what does Jesus say? If anyone wants to follow after me, that's discipleship, right? That's what a disciple does to follow after Jesus. What's the first expectation? He says, deny himself. It's a command. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, deny yourself. Now, what does Jesus mean here? Well, can we just get out of the way what he does not mean? Jesus is not saying that we all become like desert monks where we experience no pleasure. We do nothing that brings us any pleasure, any joy, that we just mope and crawl and be miserable the whole rest of our earthly existence. A lot of times that's how this is understood, right? That a, that a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, now your life is marked by you simply say no to everything. But that's not what Jesus is saying. To deny here means to claim no knowledge or no relationships to something. Think of it as disowning or disavowing. Another way to think of it is to put it in terms of Christ, okay? What would it mean for you to deny Christ? What, what does that mean? It means to say, I'm not connected to him, right? That my allegiance is not to him. That, that if I have to choose between me and him, I'm choosing me, right? That's the denial Jesus is talking about. It's not that, you know, you don't eat certain things or you don't drink certain things or that you don't, you know, and I'm not talking about sinful things those are wrong okay but you get you get what he's talking about when Christ says deny yourself he's saying if you're going to choose between aligning with yourself or aligning with Christ coming under the banner of you or Christ the king you choose Christ and that means denying yourself making no claim for yourself and so this denying yourself it is, a, uh, it is a picture of a commitment, a committal. So Jesus is, Jesus is not talking about this, this dry erase board type of following Jesus. You know, dry erase boards are great because you can write something on it and then you can erase it the next day, right? He's not saying that you say, I follow Jesus. And then when somebody says, who wrote this on the dry erase board? You say, I don't see anything. What are you talking about? 
He says, deny yourself. And why would he need to say that? Well, notice what the next thing is. The first expectation is that we would align ourselves with Christ. We would deny ourselves. If given the choice between Christ and ourselves, we choose Christ. The second thing he says, though, the second expectation is what? Take up his cross. This is the second command. The disciple who is one whose life is characterized by taking up the cross. Now, let's slow down a little bit. Because I think what oftentimes we do with this command is either we go way off course and we talk about... You know, a lot of times you'll hear people talk about, you know, that person, they're my cross to bear. Or this, this thing that I deal with, it's my cross to bear. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But sometimes we over-Christianize or we read back into what Jesus says here that the disciples have very little understanding exactly of what's going to happen that Jesus has talked about he's going to be killed and be raised on the third day. But, but they have no real understanding of, of all that the cross means. And so my point is, is when Jesus says, take up your cross, he's talking about how they would have understood it in that day, in that time, pre-crucifixion. Right? So what does that mean? It means Jesus says, you know that, that cross that's only for criminals? That's only for those who are the lowest, for the most vile, the most shameful, the most hated. You know that, that, that cross where it is a, a, uh, it's not something that, that people delight in talking about. They like looking at, that they enjoy. Jesus says that is what you need to expect. You need to, the way you respond to the cross... Right, Peter, the way you say, may it never be, that, there's no way that the Messiah would undergo the shame and the scorn of a cross. Jesus says the exact expectation that you have is how you need to anticipate the life of a disciple is going to be. So how would, we, how would we think about this? Before the cross ever became associated with, with Jesus, it was associated with condemned criminals. I think a modern translation equivalent would be something like deny yourself and place yourself on the firing line. Deny yourself and put your head on the chopping block. Deny yourself and put your neck on the line. So what, what is something that, that we might say that's, too, uh, that's a vile form of execution? That's only for the worst of the worst. And, and Jesus says the shame, the scorn that's associated with that you need to expect that that is exactly, is, that's exactly what's going to be shown to you. Right? And how does Jesus know that? He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, he's going to experience it first. He experiences first the mockery, the shame, the, the scorn, the scoffing. So he says, essentially, that rejection, that mistreatment, that, that guilt, that shame that's associated with the cross, you need to be willing to take that up. Just go ahead and understand that you're signing up to be hated. You're signing up to be mocked. You're signing up to be scorned. You're signing up for the world to hate you. Let 
Do you see why now he says we need to deny ourselves? So that's the second expectation. But then there's the third expectation. He says, let him deny himself, take up his cross. And the third command is, follow me. Follow me. Now, uh, we need to do a little bit of a language lesson here, okay? So hang with me. The first two commands picture the, the action as a whole from start to finish. Think of it as you're looking at it from a skyscraper and you're looking at the whole parade and you see the whole thing. He's saying, in general, the whole life of a disciple it can be characterized as denying yourself and taking up your cross. That's kind of the sum, summary of the Christian life. But when he says, and follow me, he uses a different verb that instead of looking at the parade from the top of a skyscraper, this is like street level, and you're watching the parade go by. The point is, is that when he says follow him, it's an ongoing action. He's saying that this is, this is what you're going to live day to day. The life of a disciple is one of an ongoing following after Christ. So as he leads the procession, you follow. It may be that it ends up in death. It may be that it ends up costing you. But day in and day out, it's one of following Christ. And what I love about this is Jesus, here's the grace of God, right? He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, but this follow me. Jesus understands that our growth in denying ourselves. That this, this process of taking up our cross is something that we will continue to learn the rest of our life. Jesus says that the life of a disciple, if we read it backwards, is one of continuing to learn what it means and just how much we need to take up our cross and deny ourselves. That's the life of a disciple. So here, here the comforting part of this, right? And no point does Jesus expect that on day one of following Jesus, you'll have this all sorted out. Praise God, right? Because none of us have, right? It, but it's an ongoing process of, of learning the dynamic of this in the life of a disciple. So think about where you are. Maybe there's areas where you, you know that you have not willingly denied yourself and aligned with Christ. You have not taken up the cross. You have not been willing to endure the association or, or the consequences of association with Jesus. But that does not mean you have to stay there. Jesus says that we are to follow him wherever he leaves. So, given these three commands, how do we summarize this? What's the main idea Jesus is saying here that Matthew's saying? I think it's this. Believers are to follow Christ without regard for self or shame. Believers are to follow Christ without regard for self or shame. When Jesus gives these commands, he's addressing what Peter has said, and he's addressing the disciples. And he says, 
what I, what I am doing is I am laying down my life and I'm enduring the shame of a cross. And if you're going to follow after me, you need to understand that your life will be one of growing in a disregard for the self and the shame. Jesus gives three reasons why he says what he says in verse 24. That we are to follow him with our, without regard for self or shame. But I, before, before we get into that, I think this highlights two of the greatest hindrances in the life of a disciple. Number one, what is the, one of the greatest hindrances to your growth as a disciple? It's an overzealous concern for yourself. Whether it's safety, whether it's provision, whether it's your agenda, whatever it is, Jesus says, deny yourself. Deny yourself. One of, one of the greatest hindrances to the life of a disciple is we seek to maintain our place on the throne of our hearts. And Jesus says the life of a disciple is where you, you greater learn and, more, and learn more quickly to get off the throne and let Jesus be the Lord. But the second one is shame. One of the greatest hindrances to the Christian life is the, the desire to avoid shame. Now, I'm not talking about shame in this. There is a sense in which shame happens. Shame is a part of life. Sometimes shame is something that drives us in a good way because we, we know we've done something wrong. But shame is also something that people deal with when bad things happen to them and, and they have to deal with feelings of shame and guilt for things that they probably shouldn't. That's just a part of the sinful world we live in. But we're not talking about those kinds of shame. We're talking about we want to avoid hardship. We want to avoid anything bad happening to us. We don't want to lose our job. We don't want to lose our pay. We don't want to be... But what does Paul say? Romans 1.16 For I am not, what? Ashamed of the gospel. So one of the greatest hindrances is not just self, but it's shame. We do not want maybe any of the unpleasantness that deep down we might know will come if we identify publicly with Christ. But I hope to convince you, and Jesus seeks to convince you, Matthew seeks to convince you on why neither a concern for self or shame really works out in the end. And there's three reasons why. These are the three reasons why he says what he says in verse 24. And you see this in, in the CSB, the translation that I have. In verse 25, it says, for, there's reason number one. And verse 26, it says, for, there's reason number two. Verse 27, for, so Jesus is giving three reasons, okay? And what's the first one? The first one is in verse 25, and really, you could call it the paradox of preservation, the paradox of preservation. What is the first reason why we ought to follow Jesus this way? Well, notice what he says. He says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. If you want to save your life by denying Christ, you end up losing it. But he says, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. So Jesus says, understand you're signing up for the shame. 
deny yourself, align with Christ, identify with Christ, grow in your identification and your denial and your taking up your cross and following Jesus and understand that if you seek to save your life by not doing that, if you seek to recant and and save your life, you lose it. But whoever loses his life, Jesus says, because of me will find it. So Peter's wanting to avoid the the hardship. He's wanting to avoid the shame and the suffering. And Jesus says, if you deny me in order to avoid all these things, what you end up doing is only bringing that on yourself even more. You can't avoid it. There is a paradox here that if we seek to avoid those things, we actually, well, we're not avoiding them at all, number one. But if we seek to save our life, if if Peter seeks to save his life, if we seek to save our life at the expense of denying Christ, we're losing our life, right? But he says, those who lose their life because of me will find it. So that's the first reason. If you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it because of him, you'll find it. But look at verse 26. We might call this the emptiness of evasion, the emptiness of evasion this is the second reason. He says, for what benefit, or excuse me, uh, for what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? In other words, if you seek to evade the persecution, if you seek to, seek to get around it so that you can hold on to your stuff, to accumulate, to gain the whole world, and yet use your life, what do you ultimately gain? Jesus says it would be better to lose everything and keep your soul. What will it benefit? There's an emptiness to to denying Christ in order to keep our stuff, to gain the whole world, because then he says, or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? The answer is nothing. There is nothing you can give. There's no amount of wealth. There's no goods. There's no services. There's no righteousness that you can give in exchange at the end of your life when you're called to an account that will be enough. So there's an emptiness to evasion. You might seek, sometimes we might seek to avoid the suffering that comes with being a disciple so that we can keep our goods. And Jesus says, ultimately, that's emptiness. So what's the third reason? He says in verse 27, there is the reality of a reward. Look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come. Now let's stop right there. Let that sink in. The Son of Man, Jesus, is going to come. Jesus mentions no words. It's not might come. It's not probably will come. It's not we'll see, TBD, or anything else. The Son of Man is going to come. And notice... The reality of this reward. Notice, notice Matthew's description here. He's going to come with his angels. Whose angels? His angels. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels. Who, who do the angels belong to? God. But here the Son of Man is saying he's coming with his angels. And it says not only that. But he's going to come 
with the glory of his Father. So this language, Son of Man, this comes out of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the Ancient of Days and, and is there, and Daniel sees the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, and this Son of Man is this, this figure that is going to come and bring the, the, the glorious end that is promised. And Jesus says the Son of Man is going to come with his angels. He's God. He's being equated with God, and he's going to come in the glory of his father. If you go read Daniel 7. The ancient of days. Shares his glory with the son of man. And then it says what? And then he will reward each. According to what he's done. So this is actually a quote. From Psalm 62 verse 12. Where the psalmist says. Faithful love belongs to you Lord. For you repay each. According to his works. So not only does he. Is he equated with God because it's his angels? He's the son of man is equated with Yahweh out of Psalm 62. So there is a sense in which Jesus is being claimed. It's claimed that he's God, that he's the son of man. He is this figure and he's coming to judge according to what each has done. There is a reality of reward. Now think about that. Jesus says... Expect suffering. Expect that you will need to deny yourself and come after me. Keep following me. And who is it that gives the reward? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who rewards us. Now I want to take a moment right here and let's... I want to do... I want to do some pastoral counseling here because... There's two, there's two reactions to this. That phrase, and he will reward each according to what he has done. Either that brings you great terror or it brings you great comfort. And the way you respond to that says a lot about maybe where you are with the Lord. Maybe where you think you are with the Lord. But it also might reveal that you need to consider a proper understanding of salvation and what takes place. Well, what do I mean by that? But simply put, if we think about this from the, from the angle of an unbeliever, this ought to terrify you. This ought to terrify you if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because there is coming a day where you will stand before the one that you have rejected for so long. And you will. You will not be able to escape. You will not be able to miss this court date for any reason. You will appear before the judge and have to give an account for every thought. Every deed. Every careless word spoken and there will be no way for you to escape. We will all give an account. Now, Christian, either this terrifies you or it brings you comfort or maybe a mixture of both. But I want you to understand why this ought to bring you comfort. What is the, 
the goal of this judgment? What, what happens? Well, it says that we will each, uh, he will reward each according to what he has done. So there's two ways to understand this. Either Jesus is saying that we are rewarded for our good works, which it's okay. That we're rewarded for our good works, but, but we have to be careful in saying it's not just because of good works. The, the good works we do are, are considered good works when done unto the Lord. And they're sanctified by what Jesus has done. But this idea that we will give an account. Understand that when we do that as believers, it will be... To the magnification of God's mercy. L- let me put it this way. Understand, I understand why that sounds terrible, but understand that when you as a Christian stand before the Lord and you give an account for every word, every deed, everything spoken, number one, everybody is going to be uh, placed in the light. So maybe your reaction to this is, I don't want to be there because people are going to hear about all my secret sins, all my pet sins, all the things that only I and God know about. Well, guess what? Everybody's going to be in the same boat. But secondly, that laundry list is not so that he sends us to hell. It is to magnify his own mercy and his own grace. Think about it this way. What if the joy And the delight in God's mercy and grace for all eternity finds its soil and its source in the fact that Jesus goes through our entire life, every single sin, and then at the end still says, you are my son, you are my brother, my sister, come into the kingdom of heaven. So, so. As believers, that giving an account is ultimately for the magnification, for the the exaltation of God's glory and His kindness and His grace and His mercy. But if that day terrifies you, let let me put it in another perspective. That day, that will be the day when you finally see Jesus. That will be the day when you finally hear him say to you, my son, my daughter. That will be the day when he finally calls you my bride, the one that I've loved. That will be the day when you will see him face to face the way you see me face to face right now. Think of that day in those terms. That day is coming. So there is a sense in which there is a reward that awaits us. And ultimately, if you want to think of it this way, that reward is either eternal life or eternal damnation. Yes, we have to give an account. But for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, that is not the final word. Your sin in, does not have the final word on that day. The blood of Jesus Christ has the final word. So, the, the logic here is take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Why? Because you can't save your life and keep it. You cannot evade it and, 
gain anything. And there is a sense in which the one that you would deny is the one that you have to stand before. But it's also the one who will reward. So we get to verse 28. And then there's this one last promise that he gives. And really, you could think of it as an additional reason for what Jesus says. He says, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, I probably should have left a little bit more time for this verse because it's a very hard verse to understand. Um, It's a... One reason it's hard to understand is because we're not quite sure what the reference Jesus is making here. He says that some in the disciples will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So if you take this as a reference to the second coming when Jesus returns, well, all the disciples have died, and so Jesus is wrong. That's your first option. If Jesus is talking about the same coming in verse 27, well, then that's already happened. And we've missed out and he was wrong. So what are the possibilities? Well, some people say it's a reference to Jesus' passion, his crucifixion. Some say his resurrection. Some say the transfiguration, which comes right after this. Or the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., uh, I think the best two example, uh, the best two explanations, and I'll just be honest with you, I'm not really sure uh, that I've settled on one or the other, but I think the two best explanations are either the transfiguration or the resurrection. And I'm leaning towards the resurrection because Matthew 28 echoes the language of Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, all authority is given to the Son of Man. And what does the Great Commission say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. So the disciples were there. They had not died until they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Uh, So, why would Jesus say this? If we zoom out, I think the, the big picture is this. Peter was concerned about glory. Remember we talked about that? A theology of glory, a theology of the cross. He wanted, he wanted the crown without the cross for Jesus. But Jesus says, it's not that there's no glory. Peter was right. He was right. It's not that there's not glory. It's just that we have to have them in the right order. Jesus says, you're going to see the crucifixion. You're going to see the cross. You're going to see the shame. You're going to see the rejection. You're going to see the hatred. And it may look like there's no glory to be had in that. He says, but after that comes the glory. After that comes the glory. And I think the same is true for us. What does Paul say? For I consider... That our present sufferings is not worthy to be compared to what? I know Jesse knows. I hope he knows. I don't want to put you on the spot. The joy, the, the joy, I don't think it's the joy, it's the what? Anybody know the verse? Our suffering pales in comparison with the glory that is going to be revealed. Jesus says to his disciples, there is glory. It may not look like there's glory. 
There doesn't look like there's glory when the world hates you. It doesn't look like there's glory to be had, that there's victory to be had when they persecute you, when they hate you, when they steal from you, when they lie about you, when they crucify you, when they kill you. It looks like there's no glory to be had. But Jesus says, what? If you want to come after me, follow me. And where does Jesus grow? It's the cross first and then the glory. That's the life of a disciple. We know that there's going to be the cross, but we also know there's going to be the glory. There is coming a day when the glory of Christ will be shown and Jesus will return. And I am so thankful that this passage tells us that wherever you are, wherever you're suffering, whatever you're going through right now, no matter how hard it is, there's a day when glory is coming. So what are we to do with this? What are you to do with this today? Maybe, maybe there's an area God's calling you to lay it down. Lay it down. Let it go. You've been trying to persevere or preserve yourself, your dignity, whatever it is, and you need to let it go. You've been trying to keep your composure. You don't want everybody or anybody to know the things that you deal with or what you wrestle with because you would be ashamed. Let it go. Maybe you've been trying these reasons, you've heard them, and you know one of them or all of them apply to you. What you need today is to return. You need to turn from that and come once again to the loving, welcoming Lord Jesus Christ who loves you, who died for you, Who forgave you. Maybe you need to choose the way of denial. The cross. Following after him. Let's pray together. Lord we thank you for this day. We thank you. For a chance to be in your house. And again to be reminded of our great need. Lord that our salvation rests not in anything we do. But in what's been done for us. But Lord, after we trust and rest, God, we can expect that the life of a disciple does not mean that our life is always easy. The world will hate us. The nations will rage. We are called to deny ourselves, to align with Christ, to take up the cross, the shame, the rejection, knowing that one day the glory will come and be revealed and all will be made right. So Lord, however you have spoken to your people this morning, God, may they be quick to hear. May they not look in the mirror and then forget what they've seen when they turn away. But God, that we would be doers of the word, hearers and doers. Lord, work in this time in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.